This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for Episode 73 is Jungian analyst and clinical psychologist, Dr. Bradley Topaski in Los Angeles, California. He studied art history and received a Master of Fine Arts in Printmaking from the University of Massachusetts before being called to train as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, where he earned a diploma in analytical psychology. He then went on to study clinical psychology and received a Ph.D. from the Union Institute of Cincinnati. He also studied early Christianity and Greco-Roman mystery religions with Professor Berger A. Pearson at the University of California, Santa Barbara, Hindu Tantra with the Bengali scholar and art collector Ajit Mukherjee, and was a longtime student of the distinguished San Francisco Jungian psychiatrist, Dr. Donald F. Sandner. For nearly 40 years, Dr. Topaski has practiced as a Jungian analyst and clinical psychologist and has served as an individual and group psychotherapist with the Program in Human Sexuality at the University of Minnesota Medical School, the Parent Assistance Center in Santa Fe, Child Abuse Listening and Mediation in Santa Barbara, and the Violence Intervention Program an inner-city domestic violence program in East Los Angeles. Dr. Topaski has lectured frequently at the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles on the mythology and psychology of Gnosticism and myth, ritual, and initiation in the Greco-Roman mystery religions, and has presented numerous seminars on Mary Magdalene and the Sophia wisdom tradition to audiences in the United States, Europe, and Australia. His paper, The New Mary Magdalene, was a keynote lecture for the 50th anniversary of the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich in 1998. He is the author of Rape and Ritual, a Psychological Study, published by Inner City Books, and Sexuality and the Religious Imagination, previously published by Spring Journal Books and republished this year by Chiron. He is also a contributor to the books The Allure of Gnosticism, The Gnostic Experience in Jungian Psychology and Contemporary Culture, and The Sacred Heritage, The Influence of Shamanism on Analytical Psychology. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you'll find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, September 16th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Dr. Topaski. Uh, good morning. It's nice to be with you, and I'm honored to be included in your series with a number of people who are my colleagues and friends and people I respect. So we're here today to take a look at your book that was just republished by Chiron. It's called Sexuality and the Religious Imagination. And when referring to it, I kept accidentally saying, and the religious instinct. So why is it titled Sexuality and the Religious Imagination? Hmm. That's a very interesting uh, question, because uh, instinct is something that goes on reflexively and quite naturally, and uh, pertains you know, to the body's energies and, uh, and uh, the archetypes on one end of their spectrum. Uh, Jung talks about how the archetype 
archetypal patterns in human beings descends into the body and into the red end of the spectrum, as he says. Uh, but it also has an image component, mm-hmm. and it's a real central part of the book, uh, Sexuality and Religious Imagination, in that uh, instinct is uh, the basis but it has its, this whole other component, a psychical component, that really consists of images. Uh, actually, I could uh, uh, quote uh, the, the uh, front piece from uh, uh, Sexuality and Religious Imagination that I used even when it first became my uh, dissertation paper mm-hmm. with, uh, the, uh, with uh, the Union Institute in Cincinnati. Uh, it's a beautiful line that I had originally that, what, 25, six years ago, and appears today in the same place in the publication. And it comes from a Gnostic poem that's really become quite famous called uh, The Thunder, Perfect Mind, in which uh, Eve, or Sophia as Eve, uh, speaks of her nature. And one of the, uh, and the passage goes, for many are the pleasant forms that exist in numerous sins and incontinencies and disgraceful passions and fleeting pleasures, which men embrace until they become sober. And they will, and when they, then they will go up to me and I, they will live and I, they will not die again. Mm. That idea of uh, those instinctual things, to start with your word, uh, many are the f- pleasant forms that exist within them. You know? mm-hmm. uh, and the dreams are the most obvious example of that. So it's just the fantasy that comes with falling asleep or being in a hypnagogic state uh, uh, or hypnopompic state when you wake half awake or in half sleep in the morning. Uh, there's a lot of ways in which psyche and its imagery, as it were, gets into us. So I'd like to get into the book in a little bit, but first I would like to talk a little bit about you and your background. You did your analytic training in Zurich. You uh, then went on to receive a PhD, and a lot of the analysts I speak with do it sort of the other way around. They get their PhD first, and then they do further training in Zurich. So would you tell us a little bit about how and why you did it that way? Uh-huh. It reminds me of being in Zurich when there any, I was very young uh, when I got there. I was 28, just turned 29, oh, wow. my training. And uh, believe me, I was reminded of how young I was. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot, of, a lot of people there who had come like after being ministers for years or clinical psychologists for years or in one case an entomologist for years, uh, all different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's a wonderful part of that training program. And um, so I came after art school and after a very amazing and terrifying crisis that kind of gave me my depth psychological perspective very late at art school. Uh, So I went after my MFA, I went immediately and worked in a psychiatric hospital in Minneapolis for a couple of years. Uh, And then I went on to Zurich. So when I got there, unlike many of the people around me, you know, I was out to start a career, you know, to, to study, uh, to begin a career. Okay. Uh, and so as it turned out in Minnesota, where I lived then, 
uh, the, the, uh, and given the arrangements between the original C.G. Jung Institute and the Bureau of Ed or the Board of Education in Zurich, it was deemed a, a, PA, a legal Ph.D. equivalent. Yes. I could get my psychology license in Minnesota, and again, uh, I have to had to do a redo a lot in California. Uh, but uh, so that says why I did that progression. Then I found myself in my early 30s and I had time and could afford it. So uh, I decided why not get uh, a full PhD mm -hmm. instead of uh, being Brad Topasky MF, MFA uh, forever. Right. And that's when I actually initiated uh, the rape and ritual uh, began as my diploma thesis that, uh, in, in Zurich, and uh, sexuality and religious imagination uh, was the product of my work with Union, the Union Graduate Institute. Would you tell us a little bit about Rape and Ritual? That was published by Daryl Sharp at Inner City Books. He did that frequently. He published the dissertations of his fellow trainees there in Zurich at the Institute, and uh, it's gone out of print, but it is coming back in ebook format, and I will provide a link to that in the show notes. But it was published in 1982, I believe, originally. And as you mentioned to me earlier, it still holds today. So would you say a little bit about what is in that book? Yeah, that was uh, Daryl Sharp's fifth title, I believe. And uh I was honored that one of the persons who read it at Inner City was Marion Woodman, who I respect mm -hmm. a great deal. Uh, I think that that generated now when I was in, uh, out of, you know, personal issues, uh, all the things that trappings that go and contents that go along with a, a negative uh, uh, mother complex or ostensibly negative and uh, experiences with my father and watching his life as a public servant from backstage uh, generated that. Uh, when I was in, at that point to choose a topic uh, uh, in, uh, in Zurich, uh, my choices were what, the role of homo eros in the masculine psyche was one choice, the second one was uh, uh, j the relationship of Jesus to, to women, because, uh, of course, there's Mary Magdalene, and there's a woman who drew water for him, the Sumerian woman, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, so um, from those, those, those topics were things that were part of my work all along, especially the one about Mary Magdalene and Jesus really comes out a lot uh, in sexuality and the religious imagination. Mm -hmm. you know. While in Zurich, too, I also had that wonderful uh, opportunity to hear lectures by Gillis Quispel, yes. who was uh, a Dutchman, uh, a very kind of fierce, professorial, proud guy. Uh, but uh, I'm Dutch, my background is. And so he really gave me a window to look back on my Dutch Reformed, very Protestant uh, Christian upbringing and really see it with a new Gnostic eye mm -hmm. and come appreciate it and kind of enter into, into uh, back into at least giving uh, my Christian tradition the, the, the respect it deserved and mm. uh, Gnostic key. Well, I was going to ask you about him later, but let's talk a little bit about him now. 
I did watch his interview. Uh, there is that wonderful series, Remembering Jung, that was produced by the C.G. Jung Institute in Los Angeles, uh, Suzanne mm-hmm. Wagner and her husband, George Wagner. And oh, yeah. one of those episodes, yes, is with Professor Quispel about the Jung Codex. Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners are very interested in that. Um, we don't really know the full story, just what Professor Quispel says in that video. What do you know about the Jung Codex? And and I'd like to ask you about Jung's interest in Gnosticism. And Yeah, uh, I think we may come up a, a little bit short there. Uh, in general, I'm aware, I was always aware of the fact that, Jung, that uh, Quispel uh, knew the scholars who had uh, had opportunity to look at the Nakamati find from 1945, and knew that there was need of, of funding the uh, attention to them, the uh, prep, you know, the care of the manuscripts, their translations and such. And uh, so he was privy to uh, opportunities to get the Gnune Codex and name it such mm-hmm. and. Give it to CG. Uh, give it to CG Jung. I believe it was actually something that was given to the CG Jung Institute. And uh, my primarily uh, getting involved in Gnosticism was largely based on the the publication of the Nag Hammadi Library as a whole, mm-hmm. rather than the Jung Codex, which I don't know that I don't know much of anything about. Uh, and uh, except that that was something that Jung was certainly ready to, to take a look at. I've often thought that C.G. Jung would have just joyed in a full copy of the Nag Hammadi Library. Because yes. uh, he didn't have a chance to, uh, uh, to uh, get into that. I'm sure he would have devoured it with uh, love and vigor. <laughs> so what was your experience with those texts? Hmm. Um... There's a number of things. Uh, the, the Gnostics talk about imagery in a very, very wonderful way, mm-hmm. in a highly psychological way. Actually, I just wrote to a friend last night uh, and thought of one of them. Uh, this gives you a sense of, of that. Um, uh, it was, let's see, the quote is, when you see your face, you smile. But when you see those images which came into being before you did and which can neither be made manifest nor forgotten, ah, then how much will you have to bear? Mm -hmm. There's another one quite similar in spirit to that, uh, which actually uh, is in the flap of the, the dust jacket of this book. Uh, where Jesus says in, uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, I believe it is, yes, at the beginning, let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds, and when he finds, he will become troubled, and when he becomes troubled, he will become astonished. Mm-hmm. That's a hint, too, at how the things that you meet in a crisis, in the darkness of unknowing, uh, that uh, in your suffering that that comes through, and it's a very beautiful, concise saying of that. Mm-hmm. When naive family members or uh, acquaintances ask, say the typical thing you say to psychologists, many people are psychotherapists here. Is how can you stand to just sit there and listen to everybody's problems day in and day out? Uh, mm-hmm. 
I always chuckle a little bit and use that line. Mm. Uh, it's cryptic and teasing to mm. keep on seeking until you find. And when you become troubled, you will become astonished. It also adds, and rule over the all. That means you'll get it. You'll know there's an inner world. You'll have a hint of the autonomy and numinous life of the collective unconscious. You know, Gnosticism is really uh, a very profound, highly spiritualized or platonized uh, archetypal psychology, you know, from the first century. And it's been made an immense, uh, immense impact on our era, what it has said to uh, get rid to to banish uh, the sexist slander of Mary Amygdala, uh, Jesus' intimate companion over the years, and uh, to bring her into her real light as the disciple, or the disciple who Jesus loved the most, and who he used to kiss often on the on the mouth. Uh, uh, that, and also, perhaps more importantly, bringing Mary Magdalene into full glory as an amazing visionary, as you find in the Gnostic Gospel of Mary. So these Gospels that you're referring to are from the Nag Hammadi Library, the Find, uh, from 1945. And yeah, the, the Gospel of Mary is the, the one I just referred, uh, but there's an array of wonderful things. One thing I might uh, add, too, comes from a, one of the documents in that collection called the Apocryphon of John, mm -hmm. where there's a, a wonderful description of how uh, the Adam with Eve inside him, of course, was fashioned from clay and laid there for a long time. But then a mixture of angels and, de and demons came and fashioned a psychic body for that clay thing, and it came, came to life. And it's uh, almost uh, tantric-like in its suggestion of the chakra symbols that many, many schools in, uh, in uh, this big com complex called Hinduism uh, have elaborated over the years. Mm -hmm. So very interesting connection there. Also is that uh, some of the earliest Christian communities uh, in, in you know east from from uh, Israel, what's now Israel, uh, were there were Buddhist communities uh, who had uh, a kind of uh, uh, mon not monasteries, but groups that may have been touched uh, the the Nagamati tradition a bit. Crystal talks about that more articulately, of course. And so how did you come to read these Gospels? What, what drew you to them? How did you find out about them? And what I, what I want to get to is their connection with Jungian psychology. All right. Uh, no, I read, uh, I read Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Mm -hmm. And I, I, this word, uh, Gnosticism. Right. In German, in German or, or more properly, someone does say Gnosis. I see. And uh, uh, the, the very professorial Gillis Quispel with his re lecturing reading glasses on, there's nobody who could say Gnosis right. like him as he, <laughs> as, he pushed, as he pushed his glasses back up <laughs> to the bridge of his nose. Yes. But I was thought, uh, I thought, well, what on earth is this G word? 
I thought there was a wonderful audacity in having a word that started with G-N. It was just kind of, uh, and then I started reading some of it. Actually, on the way to Zurich, uh, mother, my children, my former wife, Norma, uh, we were going to uh, be going to over New, uh, New England, I guess it was, uh, on our way to Europe for me to start training at the Jung Institute. And there was a huge conference on Gnosticism at Yale. And I begged her, let's go to that. Let's mm, go to that. Yeah. Uh, she said, uh, yeah, that might be nice, but I think we've really got enough on our plate uh, to just be flying off to Zurich to start Jungian training. Mm. So yeah. <laughs> I missed it. You missed it. So your essay, Mary Magdalene in the Canonical and Gnostic Gospels, is included in a book called The Allure of Gnosticism, The Gnostic Experience in Jungian Psychology and Contemporary Culture. It includes essays by Murray Stein, June Singer, Professor Quispel, Elaine Pagels. And I'm wondering if you would explain to us a little bit about how Mary Magdalene fits into analytical psychology, because you say something about how I'm looking for it here. You talk about her erotic bond to Jesus and how um, something about how she confronts the unconscious. She dares to confront the unconscious. Yes. Hmm. Uh, yeah. That uh, I'm. I was uh, quite amazed and grateful to Murray Stein uh, when he asked me to write a paper for that book because the people you've just mentioned are were a, you know, old, uh, a little older than me and a very significant uh, mm. standing. So it was like a big, a big deal for me to get in that book. But I think, um, you know, when we talk about Mary Magdalene and Jesus uh, bond, I mean, we have to think of Eros in its full spectrum mm -hmm. from a bodily affection or whatever one wants to understand that, you know, into eros in the real sense of a penetrating desire to know. And when uh, Hillman says somewhere, you know, wherever eros is pointing, something psychological is happening. Mm -hmm. uh, but the most, uh, in the Gospel of Mary, the thing that's uh, quite wonderful, is it the Gospel of Mary? Um, yes, it is. Um, where Peter uh, and the other, uh, uh, the other disciples, uh, Peter gets up and says to the disciples, basically, hey guys, Mar uh, Mary has been talking to Jesus alone, and she's had a vision of him uh, that she knows about, but we do not. And it, it's, it, it's an interesting context. Here's all the guys and Mary Magdalene, so mm -hmm. the misogynist. Uh, question is is right there, but anyhow, uh, she stands up before them and says, uh, "I saw the master uh, in a vision today, uh, and uh, and he blessed, he smiled at me and blessed me." This is right after the crucifixion. Mm. He has this vision of Jesus appearing in a visionary state in spirit and blessing her for not flinching at the sight of him. She stands strong and erect and can deal with this powerful vision of visionary appearance of him. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it really goes along with the ambiance of losing some of the most beloved person, you know, you could possibly lose. 
uh, and uh, and has that ambiance that breaks through of all kinds of little mysterious synchronicities and and curiosity about the membrane between between this side of life and the other that are part of that ambiance. But uh, Mary's bull to to stand there and uh, and meet her Lord. Uh, that says that says it. Yes. <laughs> so how do you deal with? We're here in the United States. This is largely a Christian culture, and this idea nominally, yeah, yes, and this idea that Jesus had a relationship of that kind with Mary Magdalene and th- there's proof of it there isn't proof of it how mm-hmm. do you deal with um i don't know sort of integrating that into what the times we're living in the culture we're living in mm-hmm. what what do you say to that i'm just yeah i think of people like uh Elaine Pagels or Karen King uh or uh you know, or or Nancy Qualls, mm-hmm. women who have really worked on on that. Uh, Rosamond Miller was a Gnostic uh, hierophant. I, I really would use that word for her in Palo Alto. She actually married my wife Arlene and I. Uh, oh, did the, she? Oh, nice. Yeah, that was quite nice. It was a very Sophianic wedding. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll let the women who've worked on that speak for themselves in their own uh, in their own uh, way. But uh, for me, originally, I was going to uh, my book, Sexuality and Religious Imagination. It had been my dissertation, and then I wanted to write a book on Mary Magdalene. And I made a couple different pilgrimages to uh, Magdalene sites uh, in the south of France uh, that yeah. were really important. I happened, speaking of the ambiance of losing someone who meant as much to, uh, to you as anyone could, uh, the night before I flew off to Paris to then take the, the TGV down to the, the, to, uh, uh, the Magdalene sites near Marseille, I found from a friend uh, who left a message on my, Magdalene, on my uh, machine that Don Sander had just died oh. of a heart. I know he was very important to you. So I kind of dragged my innards around Paris for a few nights, you know, uh, drank too much uh, uh, and all the rest of it in just this grief. Uh, But the rest of it then got luminous and the whole trip down there and to the different, the one, the famous cave at Nantes-les-Pins in southern France. It's about 50 miles north of Marseille. Uh, That's what, you know, the great artists have always shown Magdalene in her cave entrance uh, and I went to the real place where she you know it's let myth and legend truth and poetry and in, in those that part of the world but I actually visited the, the cave uh, that Mary Magdalene supposedly dwelled in and I, I definitely lit a few candles and burned a little incense in memory of my my dear friend Don Sander would you tell us a little bit about him? You dedicate uh, your book to him, and uh, he was your mentor and your teacher. And would you tell us a little bit about his influence on you? 
Yeah, when I got home after Zurich to Minneapolis and uh, was back with the Minnesota Young Association, uh, the people, uh, I had a list of three people who I was assigned to uh, 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 invite to Twin Cities to speak because mm-hmm. I was the program chair. One of them was John Talley. Uh, from Santa Fe, whose house I later purchased when I moved there for a while. Oh, did you? The other was Marion Woodman, and I, you know, which is a great honor. And the other was this guy named Donald Sandner from San Francisco. And I remember he got off the plane and he walked off, and our eyes met, and we just grinned at each other. And by the end of the weekend, in which he talked about Navajo's wonderful work on Navajo symbols of healing, uh, we had become real friends. And uh, when he went back to San Francisco, he sent me a, a crystal that he claimed, uh, with sufficient whimsy, uh, was a was a fossilized uh, shaman's bone. Oh. And I happened to have uh, uh, a newly cast uh, skin of a California king snake, which was a pet of mine, mm-hmm. that, I, uh, that I rolled up and sent back to him. So <laughs> with the shaman's crystal wow. and the snake skin, uh, we, uh, we forged a partnership and uh, uh, a real love for each other that only ripened over many, many years. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have a little, in my home altar here, I have a little box with skulls all over it. And uh, in it is that, is that snake skin. That I got back, I got back from Don's desk, uh, as well as a tiny little dried-up salamander with my little white and blue bead baby bracelet that says Tapaski on it. So that's that's my inner sanctum here in my office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, what do these things mean to you? They're obviously numinous to you. And what can you tell us about the importance of objects such as those? Oh, yeah. Um, would you remind me of that when I, after I say one more thing about Don? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's I have actually a li- uh, in my a file on my on my computer. It says if I were I to call and I tell myself a shaman, which I don't because it's too much of an indigenous thing. Mm-hmm. The thing about Sander was that he was a real friend of the Navajo that he worked with a, a healer named Natani So for, I think, nine summers, a month for, a month each for nine summers. And uh, as back as the, the early 60s, he and a companion went down into Peru, over the Andes, and into a, a shaman community uh, where they had, uh, you know, the original uh, indigenously rooted experiences that were a part of his life and that he you know shared with me what's your question my question was about the objects that you collected how they're numinous and meaningful and symbolic and i was just wondering if you would because i have i too have little altars all over my house and if you would just say a few words about their meaning for you for us? Oh, um, well, they're, I, I call them like the household god, you know, just little household gods. Mm-hmm. Just things that, like there's a, a polished little piece of marble there that C.A. Meyer gave me. Uh-huh. Um, I, I said, just, I, it'd be nice to have something, like an object uh, from you. So he just handed me this polished piece of marble he'd found along, along the, the Mediterranean somewhere. Little things like that. Uh, but, um, 
Hillman talks about that in one of his lectures, too, in a nice way, about how people's homes end up being filled with little household gods. Mm -hmm. They just have a memory, they capture a moment, you know, without even getting too mystical about them. those are just, uh, just I think we're like bower birds do that too. <laughs> Gather all kinds of shiny object, objects uh, for for reasons uh, they might may not cogitate about, mm-hmm. but they do it. And so human beings uh, just have many really tokens like that. I just call them the little household gods. I love you know? that. Yeah. So Dr. Sandner edited a book called The Sacred Heritage, The Influence of Shamanism on Analytical Psychology, and it contains your essay on Eliade Jung and shamanism. Mm -hmm. So in that, you show sort of the ways that shamanism is very similar to Jung's archetypal psychology, and that in many ways, archetypal psychology is a modern offshoot of ancient shamanism. Um, let's see um, how to put that. Uh, I think that you know our, our you know, Jung psychology, archetypal psychology, also the work of Mercia Iliade, you know, who's an amazing, uh, t- a towering figure in religious studies. Mm-hmm. Marcia Iliade, used to was at the University of Chicago, the yeah. Romanian religious history, and, you know, give and his book, you know, Shaman Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. You know, uh, they're both archetypal psychologies in a way. That's the stuff of it uh, that you know really uh, uh, bring us into an understanding of. Of shamanism, one of the way, most important ways I think in which Jung kind of places a shamanic initiation is in his essay on um, transform. Is it? I think it's in Transformation in the Catholic Mass, where he talks about uh, the sacrifice and the, tor- the torturing sacrifice that Jesus underwent in one level or concretely. Then he talks about the visions of a certain Greek alchemist named uh, Zosimos, where there's a psychical figure, a figure in a dream, a kind of magical little uh, midget or antiparion, as he calls him, mm-hmm. who tears himself apart, swallows himself down, spits himself out, and takes his original shape. You know, sort of like Proteus. It's a real dynamic process in that little vision of of uh, Zosimos. And then on an archaic level, where we return to shamanism, Jung talks about the rituals of shamanic dismemberment, where the shaman's body will be experienced in trance state, you know, as being rent apart or split open, having all of his bones set outside himself and numbered and replaced. And then, interestingly enough, having all of his internal viscera replaced with crystals. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, the glorifi- that's the glorified body of mm. Christ on an archetypal level. Mm. You know, that's seeing the flesh and the interior of flesh and finding these real kernels of, of uh, perpetual spirit uh, wrapped within that. I'm not sure where people are going with shamanism today because in Los Angeles is crawling with shamans. 
And at least people who take ayahuasca and go to, you know, or micro, the fashion now is to microdose with, uh, with some uh, psilocybin mushrooms. And, and uh, think, uh, so I, I look upon that as just all these, in, in an LA key, of course, which is usually over the top and me centered. Uh, but but uh, as many many people engaged in this uh, the approach you know, seeking of the religious experience in lots of ways because uh, as Jung talked a lot about you know the belief in collective large integrative religious systems has really broken down yeah. uh, into a point where we're all in search, some people have argued or discussed this to death, in search of our own myth. And I, so in spite of my own uh, weird experiments and excesses uh, on these fronts over the years, uh, when I look out in, in my clientele to uh, people who are into shamanism and doing all these experiences, you know, it's, it's an ongoing cultural experiment on an individual level. And uh, it, it, it's just what people are doing. My comment is completely secondary to any of it. Mm. So let's talk about the theme of your book, Sexuality and the Religious Imagination. What are you trying to say here uh, as far as the similarities between sex and religion? Well, it's interesting we was talking about ritual a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, isn't it interesting uh, that people's sexual behaviors uh, tend toward having a, a kind of ritualized format? Mm-hmm. You know, this is how we do it. Let's light some candles. Let's have some glass of wine. Let's do this. Let's wear that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And just like religious ritual does. Uh, and... You know, there's an old thing about uh, a discussion about how when young people at like 13 or 14 can come into a time of tremendous religious fervor, you know, that somehow I've heard people mechanistically talk about that as kind of a defense against all the energies of budding sexuality. But I would dispense with the dualism and say that it's peace. It's of a piece, you know, the two things working together. This book is filled with lots of different religious takes. You talk about the patriarchy, uh, medieval sexual heresies, the body, Mm -hmm. uh, dreams, of course. And um, sorry, I just knocked something over. (laughs) How fitting. and Hindu Tantra, and of course, Gnosticism. Uh, yeah, I worked on it for 24 years. Yeah, my goodness. And yeah. are there any differences between, I was talking to Steve Buser about this, who just is the publisher at Chiron. Well, I'm really grateful to him for taking me on, yeah. So the book had gone out of print, I think, because it was originally published by Spring, and then yeah. they closed their doors, and mm-hmm. to keep this book in circulation, Chiron republished it just this year. And I was wondering if there were any additions or any changes to the new version. No, it's it's uh, it's the same text. Yeah. Okay. You know, but there's 
there's one thing you mentioned. I happen to have read, um, reread the chapter on medieval sexual heresies. You know, getting off on that tangent, I, I had been interested by in, in Tantra, which is, of course, the most florid celebration of spiritual, sexual uh, uh, and spirit. I remember Edward Whitmont, who was really influential on me early on, talked about sexual religious ritual. That's the first time I really kind of heard that notion. Mm-hmm. And Ajit, uh, uh, who was, you know, collected tantric arts. So I wondered, and it's one of the germinal questions of the book I wrote, is that if there are these things that pop up like in Hindu Tantra, then what other sorts of things in other different contexts have approximated you know, uh, a a sacramental or uh, quasi-sacramental approach to sexuality. And uh, for some reason, I read a a book called, a fantastic classic book called The Pursuit of the Millennium by Norman Kahn, C-O-H-N, where he talks about uh, millennialist groups later in Christian tradition, long after the Sibylline prophecies and all that, in the like 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, uh, and where there was uh, all kinds of different kinds of groups that sprang up, sort of non-official orders of the Catholic Church, some more heretical, some very libertine, some very dark. It led forward in time to, you know, some of the witch craze stuff and anticipated the, the far off at that point, Reformation. And that was in an era, too, when the cult of the Virgin sprang up in the 12th century and was really part of the whole context. So that's how I ended up getting into the, those, uh, those, uh, uh, that particular chapter. But, you know, rereading it just yesterday... Uh, and then I, I came to, it's very, very pertinent, one thing in that book, pertinent to today, because I have just the vaguest idea uh, of what uh, QAnon is uh, in uh, the political j- jargon and, and conspiracy theories of the mm-hmm. day. Uh, but I found a context for it. Well, first I heard about it. Uh, there's a context for it that I call in that book the archetypal orgy uh, with certain features. Uh, it goes all the way back to the Romans thinking that Christians were actual cannibals and did terrible things with children and child abuse. Fast forward, it came up again in the Middle Ages where, of course, Jews were scapegoated in Europe mm-hmm. and it was Christians who said that it was Jews who in secret underground meetings at night would uh, pray to the devil or kiss his parts uh, and, and eat, eat children or make cakes out of their flesh, you know? And that it just knocked, it knocked me back mm-hmm. because then I heard about this, this strange thing about uh, like clandestine child uh, trafficking networks and yes. stuff that are being projected on very reasonable people uh, like Hillary Clinton, for instance, uh, in this time. And it's for anyone listening, that's a very interesting strand of a repetitious pattern of incredible inflation mixed with deadly projection onto, onto a minority group. Uh, 
and uh, and is really current today. So I'm re- glad that I reread my chapter of my own book in mm-hmm. preparation. I'll talk to you. you well, so why do you see this happening? It's a it's a repetition. It's happened before in history. So what's mm-hmm. the hook there, and what? purpose is it serving here today? Well, we have a figure in the country who's risen to the level of a, the, 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 the only, the, the God man who resembles more um, Yates uh, desert beast with the body of a lot, with the body of a man and, and the head of a lion uh, in his poem, The Second Coming. Uh, I think the forces that uh, are spreading the QAnon rumor uh, in an attempt to smear uh, more progressive persons uh, is part of that same old mythologum or that same old cultural theme. And And it's just as virulent as it has been in the past. So what's happening in these individuals who are doing this projecting, um, who are smearing the group, really, individuals and group? I'd I'd like to further understand what is happening psychologically because I'm not hearing much of that. (laughs) But the sociological context of this, the book I mentioned, uh, The Pursuit of the Millennium by Norman Kahn, the sociology, the church was breaking down. Its spiritual and political authority was being degraded. There was an accumulation of, uh, of poor, displaced proletarian populations you know, in city centers mm-hmm. up and down the Rhine, you know, frustrated, hungry, scratching for food displaced from the land, feudal systems history, and they were the ones who were particularly heir to the arising, because groups always form a monofigure mm-hmm. around the fig, uh, an ideal one, and they always find a scapegoat mm-hmm. that's a classic split, you know? And uh, so they were highly susceptible to having someone come along and prop themselves up as a certain god-man whose prog- prerogatives are, uh, are uh, sundry and, and polymorphous, and ha- who has power and sets himself as a savior for confused, scrambling uh, underclass. So what's the antidote? How do we remedy this? Uh, it's too big for a facile yeah. comment. One might read about uh, Votan, in Jung's essay after, or Jung's essay after the catastrophe of Nazism. Yes, we covered that in uh, the episode with Thomas Lavin back oh, in 2016. Great source, great source. Tom, mm-hmm. Tom Lavin is marvelous. And a modest man. Yeah. I'd like to have you talk about the devil, the Christian shadow, the feminine, mm-hmm. the hatred of the feminine. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that, that's an old one. You know, I think that uh, I've thought about it in a, in a different, not so archetype, that I think that, that I've always been amazed at the mistreatment of women uh, in the world, 
the uh, the negativity, the the frequency of, of of spousal abuse. I worked in the DV clinic, and I think that for the men who are their perpetrators, some of the spooky, the, some of the darkness that their cl- minds are clouded with really has to do with the whole pr- precedence of the mother and the feminine over the process of birth. You know, a fetus goes through a tremendous growth. Stan Groff writes about this magnificently. Um, you know, like all of us, men go through uh, an ex- you know, ex- the birth process that goes from being in an immovable situation under high pressure through a, a really stimu- uh, uh, stimulating sexually and with regards to anger and ragefulness, those energies, you know, in a, a passage uh, steadily to finally being born. And I think the deep psychosomatic memory of that, in men particularly, is one of the things that's hiding way down in the depths behind the horrible stories of rape, or uh, femicide, uh, you know, that we encounter today. Uh, and, of course, just your run-of-the-mill domestic violence and, uh, and the d- diminution of women. So that, that, that would need to be brought to the surface then, if that's really hidden way down underneath. Yeah, of course, it, the, I'm talking so broadly here. I work with one person at a time. Right itself the hardest of all, you know, in great privacy, the privacy of a psychotherapy session. You know, I'm a, I think, like to think of myself as a, a guardian of privacy, a guardian of ultimate privacy in an invasive world, you know. And so for that, that's the question of facing one's, facing one's fear, uh, Open, you know, accepting the inevitability of suffering, recognizing uh, that done right suffering is the is the teacher of compassion, the Buddhist theme, you know, and that there's a way to keep our humanity, nice word German word, our Menschlichkeit alive, even through these incredible struggles, yeah. It goes back to that line I just used, I used earlier about, you know, uh, we, we, if you're seeking, you know, when you find you'll become troubled, and when troubled and do it right, you can be astonished. <laughs> yes. And I appreciate you bringing that up because this podcast uh, gets a little difficult sometimes. These conversations get difficult because speaking to a broad general audience is not something that Jungian analysts are used to doing. I'm and, quite aware, yeah. Yes, and, the, and that the work is done one-on-one. And mm-hmm. that is why I am not promoting this podcast as being something that can take the place of analysis. I like to um, promote and encourage people to enter into Jungian analysis and not use groups or books as any kind of substitute. And uh-huh. it, it is quite awkward and difficult sometimes where I use social media to promote the podcast and it's not easy and it's not well understood. So Uh these episodes are more of kind of an introduction 
to this work. And they are with Jungian analysts because I truly believe that the work is done on it's done on ourselves, on on our individual selves, and can't be done just by reading books. It must be done through the analytic mm-hmm. relationship, I believe. So yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up. Well, and appreciate the context that you just laid. I think with the solitude that's imposed upon us by the coronavirus, too, uh, one of the things I hope as a, as, a, as a psychotherapist, analyst, depth psychologist, whatever, is that people will, in their, so, in their, in their solitude, uh, in their isolation, will find uh, some uh, uh, redeeming uh, insight, you know, uh, uh, that, will carry, that will carry them through. Uh, and uh, that's the sheltering in place has many possibilities <laughs> and depth psychological insight is one of them. Yes, indeed. So we're coming up on an hour and I was wondering if there was anything else you would like to discuss before we wrap up. I think that I've sort of been given you a general impression of, of uh, many of the themes in the book. Uh, and I appreciate this opportunity. It is something that is challenging and, uh, when all is said and done, too, about this word religion, I'm not so much interested in any particular religion, mm-hmm. but I am very, very fascinated by the individual's religious experience, which is a natural function in the human organism. Mm-hmm. You know, the religions can take care of themselves, we hope. And the interesting thing about the book is that you tie that in with sexuality. Mm-hmm. And that... I see that maybe as being something that is not going to be well understood and maybe maybe not well received. Well, there's one idea that might clarify that. Mm-hmm. You know, patriarchy, I talk a lot about patriarchy, has always looked upon, and Christian or Catholic and Christian, has always looked upon you know, sec, uh, sexuality as for the purpose of procreation. And uh, that... Pro, you know, procreation or reproductions can also be looked at in the inverse as a mere footnote to sexuality. Because sexuality, as we know since Freud, and as we know in what it, uh, in the amount of, uh, how many times, how many sexual acts take place on the planet every day without the faintest intention of reproduction. And how intimate a part of interpersonal relationships, marriages, and love affairs it is. So that's a good point to to echo what you've brought up. Well, I hope this has been accessible and interesting to people, and that it's of some value. But nothing replaces one's just uh, one's work on one's own heart and one's own psyche, and uh, and the insights that can come right in your own life, whether great or small, by public opinion. Very well said. Thank you, Dr. Topaski. Okay, it's been my pleasure. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio.
and it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to Chiron Publications, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Speaking of Jung